0: Amen. Uh, uh, Good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you here this morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. In case you were wondering, uh, Jonathan was talking about David and Gigi Savant's grandsons that were born uh, yesterday uh, at 27 weeks. Uh, So they were both just about two and a half pounds. And so David and Gigi are not here this morning because they obviously packed the car and took off as fast as they possibly could. Uh, Hopefully they'll come back one day. I'm not sure uh, if they'll... But we uh, do be praying for their family. This has been something that they have prayed for, uh, for a long time. And it's a great answer to prayer and a kindness. But there's obviously a lot of uh, concern still. So pray for their family. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. If you've not been here this entire summer, we're going to look at the attributes of love. We're going to go slow through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And just each phrase where Paul describes what love looks like, or rather, who love is and who he looks like. Uh, We're just going to take it phrase by phrase and then kind of jump some different places uh, and talk about um, that particular attribute. This morning we're talking about kindness. And so if you would follow along with me, the the passages of Scripture are printed for you in your worship folder. We're going to read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 and then go to paul's letter to the ephesians uh, and then this phrase from chapter 13 first corinthians 13 so let's read let's read together can we Uh, beginning in luke chapter 10 behold a lawyer stood up to put him to the test that is jesus saying teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And the Apostle Paul's instructions from Ephesians chapter 4 or 5, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as christ as god in christ forgave you therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. Love is kind. It does not insist on its own way. This is God's word. Uh, I want to get right to the point this morning uh, because I have a lot to say and I don't want to bother us with too much introduction. I want you to see three things this morning as we talk about what it means uh, for love to be kind. What is kindness, okay? And here, here's what we're going to look at first. We're going we're to talk first about what kindness is not. So what kindness is not, but then secondly, what true kindness is, and then thirdly, we've got to finish by asking, then how do you get it? So what is kindness, What what isn't kindness, what is kindness, and how do we get in touch with the spiritual power that can make us kind? Those are the three things we want to see this morning, okay? So let's just start first with what kindness is not. And the reason I want to start here, and the reason I want to just dive right in, is because unlike last week where Jonathan talked to us about forgiveness, you might you might say, You know, you might very clearly realize areas in your life where, oh, if that forgiveness thing is a really big deal for me, I have a really hard time with that. And I I can put my finger right on the situation or the relationship or whatever it might be where I'm really dealing with with that sense of needing to forgive or needing someone to forgive me. But this issue of kindness is a lot harder because most of us in the room, if we were polled, most people, and it's been proven in surveys and, and such that most Americans could consider themselves to be kind. So whereas last week most of us would say, man, I know that's a big deal, I have a really hard time with that, but here this morning we would say kindness, and, and you might say, well, you know, this is not that big a deal, I really don't feel like I struggle uh, with this too much. And if that's the case, then what I, the argument I want to make to you is it probably means uh, that you mistake an artificial kind of kindness for true kindness, okay? Because you see, there's an artificial kindness. There's a type of kindness that it's really just selfishness in disguise. And this is what we've got to distinguish between. Kindness is the opposite of selfishness. So look there, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians. Love is kind, and then he goes on later to say, it does not insist on its own way. And those two statements, love is kind, it doesn't insist on its own way, are, are to be seen in tension with one another. If you're kind, then you're not selfish. If you're selfish, then you're not kind. Okay? So true kindness is selfless. It's focused on the other person meeting their needs, but there's an artificial kindness that's really all about me. The problem is this is really hard to describe, but we know it when we see it. Okay? And it really, this artificial kindness, I've called it in your outline, selfish niceness. Right? It comes in two forms. Okay? And I want to describe each of you, one in more vivid detail than the other. But the first is, so this, the first form of selfish niceness and so this artificial kindness, is the person who, <clears throat> excuse me, on the surface, is very nice and courteous, but you just get the feeling by being around them that it's not, it's not real, it's not genuine. Uh, they may be helping people, but if you look, Long enough, you figure out it's really all about them. There's no humility about them, okay? And again, it's really hard to explain, so let me try to illustrate. And probably my favorite characterization of this type of artificial kindness is, and it's just it's such a poignant character that you really, it makes sense. Um, my favorite illustration is Glinda the Good and Wicked. If you've ever seen the show, the first time I saw it, uh, it was absolutely painful. It was a painful experience for me. And if you've not read the book or seen the show, it really is a rather profound treatment of how difficult it is to tell good from bad sometimes. That's really kind of the theme of the book and also the show Wicked. And of course, it's based upon The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and and in The Wizard of Oz, it's very black and white, right? If you grew up with the story, the villain in the story is clearly the Wicked Witch of the West. But in the book and in the musical, it's a little more complicated. Uh, it really is, a if you can... Follow me. It's a postmodern commentary on morality in many ways. So Elphaba, who becomes the Wicked Witch, is the outsider and is cast by by her social circle as the villain. However, she's really the one with moral convictions who's compassionate and kind and genuinely concerned for others. Then there's Glinda the Good. She's literally called Glinda the Good. The Good Witch, she becomes. And she's the hero. She's popular and perfect and very dutiful and mannerly. She's always running around trying to help people, and outwardly, she's very kind, but it's fake. She's vain, pretentious, and self-righteous, so underneath this kind of veneer of niceness, she's actually very rude. And that's the point of the story, that it's often what appears good is actually not, that kindness can be just selfishness in disguise. And so Gregory Maguire is the man who wrote the book, upon which the musical is based, and I read the book as well. And he introduces us to Golinda at the very beginning of the book as she's traveling by carriage to boarding school. And when we first meet her, she is described, I think, with absolutely perfect insight. He describes her as looking through the window of the carriage that she's riding in out at the world outside, but all she can see is her own reflection. It's a way of describing her self-preoccupation. She's absolutely obsessed with... Her appearance and what people think of her and how she stacks up against the other girls at school. And so she's always promoting herself and trying to outdo everybody else. And part of her trying to outdo everybody else and building a reputation for herself is she does these nice things for people because it makes her feel good about herself. So outwardly, very nice. But it's not real. It's all about her. Because she lacks humility. And without humility, she isn't kind. She may appear kind, but it's fake. It's just selfishness. So you just, you go watch the show, and you ought to if it comes around, because it really is fascinating. You go and watch it, and this is how it was for me anyway, and it's just, it's just agonizing and uncomfortable, uh, because it's just so, there's such a characterizing of this, right? Uh, and for me, it was, you know, I, I start to think about all the people who I know who are like that, Right? how gross it is. And then I eventually, because it takes a while, it takes me a while, but I get there eventually, okay? And eventually I start to think about how I can be like that. Fortunately, I think about other people first and then me, right? And it's just gross because on the surface, it's so pretty. It's so pretty. But underneath, underneath the surface, it's just ugly. There's no humility, see? And without humility... Any attempt at kindness becomes selfishness. But see, the second form of artificial kindness is more subtle. mean, Glenda is full of self-confidence. She she lacks humility, and it's the lack of humility that, that destroys her kindness and makes her kindness just really selfish niceness. But then, see, if you don't identify with that, don't think you're off the hook. Because on the other side, there's the person who's humble, who's temperamentally very gentle, patient, kind, always eager to please, always complying, right? And we see these people and we think, oh, man, I like like those people. I like, you know, we like that kind of kindness in other people. And it's so easy to mistake what you experience in people like that with what the Bible means by kindness, but it's not. And here's why. See, these people, they have a humility that Glenda lacks. They have humility but they lack inner strength and confidence. And so in the interior of their life, they're empty, not full. And because they're empty, empty and I, I can describe this in great detail because this is a, a lot of what I deal with, right? Because they're empty, not full, then they go through life trying to fill up their any, em, inner emptiness, trying to feel better about themselves. And a great strategy for doing that is to be nice because people like people who are nice, right? Right? DC, you if you're nice because you don't like yourself, so you need others to like, like you. If you're nice, in other words, you're always compliant, you always agree, you always give in to other people's demands, you never speak the truth, if it's going to make somebody mad, whatever it might be. If you do that because more than anything else in the world, you need people to be happy with you or you need them to be grateful, then it's really all about you. It may look like. It may look different than the artificial kindness of a person like Glenda, but it may be harder to detect, but it's the same thing. It's selfishness in disguise. And so true biblical kindness requires both humility and inner strength and confidence and fullness. If you have one without the other, it's an artificial kindness. It's selfish niceness, and that will become a little more obvious as we talk about what kindness is. So let's turn to doing that then, okay? You see, that's what kindness is not. But the bulk of what I want to talk about this morning is what kindness is. And we've already said kindness is the opposite of selfishness. Artificial kindness is motivated by selfishness. But true kindness is distinguished by the fact that it has no hint of selfish motivation. So in order to be truly kind, you have to have experienced a radical transformation of your heart so that you begin to look through the window. But you actually begin to see other people in the world outside and not just your own reflection staring back at you. See, you have to be free from the enslaving power of selfishness so you can really focus your attention on the people in your life and their needs. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power that can do that. See, salvation, as the Bible describes it, is God overthrowing the power of my self-love. Therefore, what we learn is true kindness is a grace. It's something God produces in us. It's a sign of the power of God working in your life, and it's the evidence of a new heart. So let me show you. Uh, from these texts, what true kindness looks like, and then show you the power to become that kind of person. Okay, there are three parts uh, to what the Bible means when it describes kindness. Well, probably more than three, but we're going to talk about three this morning anyway. That's as far as we're going to get, okay? There is these three things, a specific direction, there's a matrix, and then there's a motivation for kindness, okay? So all three of those things, that's what we're going to talk about. The direction of kindness, the matrix for it, and the motivation uh, behind it, okay? Okay? And so I want you to see these three things. First, there is a direction to kindness. It's outward, not inward. It's moving towards other people and their needs, not moving towards me and my needs. So kindness is very simply meeting needs. It's doing good to people. A friend of mine at our mother church in Lakeland, he has a, a personal mission statement for he and his family. Um, and you ought to have one of those. It's a good idea. But their, their family's mission statement is just this, doing as much good as possible... For as many people as possible, for as long as possible. That makes for a busy life, by the way. And his is. Doing as much good as possible for as many people as possible for as long as possible. And that's what this passage in Ephesians 4 is about. Look down there uh, at verse 32. He says there, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, walk in love. And that command towards that, that, that push towards kindness is what dominates everything else he has to say. So if you go back up to verse 29, where he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Another translation, I think says it even better. It says, no, no unwholesome talk, only what is helpful for building up according to their needs. So that's a directive about how to be kind with our words. Giving people, as Jonathan already said, what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Giving them what they need, not what they want. Saying the words that will benefit them most, not saying the words that will make them like me the most. What do they need to hear from me? What, are they, what kinds of things can I say that would be the most help to them? That's kindness. So kindness, then, can be defined very, very simply as meeting the needs of others instead of meeting your own needs. It's the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness is meeting my needs. Now apply that to words and what Paul says here in verse 29. You can be selfish with your words by being mean and combative. In other words, you can be the type of person who just goes around saying whatever they want to say and not giving any thought to how your words will affect the people who hear them. You say what you want to say, not what people want to hear, what you want to say. You can be selfish with your words by being mean and combative, or you can be selfish with your words by never being mean and combative, by never criticizing, even if it's people, what people need to hear from you. And that's See, that's artificial kindness. That's, it's all about you. That's, you're protecting yourself. You're avoiding conflict because it's hard. But that's selfish. That's not kind. So kindness means you give people what they need, whatever it is, even if it means they're going to be mad at you, because the most important thing is to do good to them to meet their needs, to be concerned for them and not concerned for yourself. Now, probably the best illustration in the entire Bible for what we're describing is here from this passage in Luke 10. It's why I chose to include this passage in our sermon text. And in Luke 10, Jesus, because of this encounter he has with this lawyer, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So follow along there. You see the lawyer stands up and he asks this question of Jesus. You know, what's what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you summarize it? You know, and uh, I'm sorry. He said, he asked Jesus, teacher, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Give me a summary. And here's the summary. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, that's it. So kindness is this neighbor love, this this loving your neighbor as yourself. And I didn't print the rest of the passage, but... It is the occasion for this parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus talks about a man who 's traveling down a very dangerous road and falls upon some thieves, and the thieves rob him, beat him, strip him naked, leave him for dead in the middle of the road, and along comes the religious professionals, the priest and the Levite, the pastors, and they are walking along the road and they see this man and they get so frightened by the situation that they literally or so you know what are concerned for their own Purity and ceremonial cleanliness that they pass literally all the way to the other side of the road and just go by the man until, along comes a Samaritan who has compassion and sees the man in his need and goes and and takes care of him and and bandages his wounds and provides for him and takes him to an inn and makes sure he's taken care of until he's healed and it's this this explanation this story of this good Samaritan, which is still a nomenclature we use in our culture, that is the model of kindness and tenderheartedness from Ephesians 4.32. He, this good Samaritan character, is the illustration of what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's unconcerned for his own safety. He doesn't mind the inconvenience of having to stop to help the man lying in the road. He's generous with his time and his money, isn't he, to make sure the man's taken care of, right? The priest and the Levite are the examples of selfishness. It's too costly for them to get involved. They're too concerned with the ramifications for them personally. They're more concerned with their own needs and getting back to their families where they're probably headed without having to go through all the trouble of taking care of this man. But the Good Samaritan is the model of kindness. He's the one who loves his neighbor as himself. So kindness is just that. It's meeting needs. It's loving other people the way that you're inclined to love yourself. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever stopped and just thought about that phrase, to love your neighbor as yourself? What does that mean? And the best explanation I've ever heard is from a pastor in Minneapolis, John Piper, who said it simply this way, just this one sentence. He said, make the measure of yourself seeking the measure of yourself giving. Make the measure of yourself seeking the measure of yourself giving. In other words, we all show incredible capacity to be energetic and creative and thorough in making sure we have what we need and that things go the way we want them to. John Piper says to love your neighbor as you love yourself means to show the same energy and creativity and thoroughness in making sure that others have what they need to. That's kindness. Kindness. Kindness reverses the momentum of our time and our energy being spent taking care of ourselves. This inward focus, it turns it outward into time and energy and creativity, making sure others are taken care of and not thinking about ourselves. So there's a direction. It's outward, not inward. Secondly, okay, kindness means mean needs, but there's a second part That we have to be careful not to leave out. And that is the matrix or the environment. And the matrix and the environment of kindness is friendship. Kindness is being a friend. Kindness is not just giving away things to meet needs. It's not just giving away your words or your money or your time. Kindness means giving yourself. Giving away yourself to people. Look down at Ephesians 4.32. Very careful. Look very carefully. Paul does not say be kind to others. What does he say? He says, be kind to one another. Now that may seem subtle, but it's very important. Because if Paul said, be kind to others, he would be telling us to find objects for our kindness. But he says, be kind to one another, and that means he wants us to find subjects for our kindness. So you see, kindness is not generosity, but from a distance. It's not impersonal. It's always doing good, meeting needs... Pursuing people, but in the context of deep friendship and relationship. And that's really what being a neighbor. Love your neighbor. Neighbor love is this idea of friendship. That's the best equivalent I can give you. So kindness is being a friend. Now, I know what you're thinking. Or maybe you're not. I know what I was thinking. This is what I was thinking. I'm exhausted. Right? I don't have any more time for any more friends than I already have. So what you know, so how do I even what what do I do with this? How do I even begin to apply these things? And so let me make a couple applications for you in thinking about kindness as friendship. First, let me this is just practical help. Find a small group of people and give yourself to them in friendship. You, I, please don't hold me to the standard. I won't hold you to it either. Nobody can be friends with every single person in this room. It's impossible. So you have you have only so much time, you have only so much of you, you're a finite being. So what you have to do is you have to find three or four other couples or three or four other people. If you're a single lady, three or four other singles or a young mom who could use help or whatever it might be. And you've got to give yourself to them. And that's why we have community groups in this church. Uh, and, and it's what we want to see people doing. I've been having all these conversations lately with people. You know, what can I do? How can I help? What You know, how do I plug in? What, what can I, my role be in the church? I want to help, we, you know, I want to help us accomplish our mission. How can I do that? And I don't know why I've had all those conversations and never had the thought to just say this. If You want to you know how you can help? You want to know how you can accomplish the mission of this church? You want to know how you can get busy in ministry in this church and in our city? Be a friend. That, sound, that sounds so silly, Right? Find three or four other people. Find three or four other families. Find somebody, a mom, who could use somebody to bring them a meal once a week. I don't know what it might be. Be a friend. That's helping us accomplish our mission in this church. Friendship is a missional strategy because we are, in our culture, driving down a super highway towards material attainment, status seeking, and all these kinds of things. But it's destroying the kind of time and space and creativity that's required for developing deep, intimate friendships so to commit to the spiritual practice of friendship we're going to have to repent of how busy our lives are and why they're so busy and why we have no room and no time for people and i want to say if your life is too busy to intentionally pursue friendship with people can i make a suggestion you're too busy and why are we so busy So we got to find a small group of people. And it may not even be people in this church. It may be the people you play t-ball with, right? It may be the people that are in your neighborhood. I don't know who it might be, but give yourself to them. But then secondly, what I think we're called to here is not only to find this small group of people and give ourselves to them in friendship, but allow, secondly, allow friendship to shape your kindness to the people in your life who aren't even in your close circle of friends. So you can't be friends with everybody, but, it, but it's possible for people that you don't spend a lot of time with to experience you as a friend. So even every encounter, whether it be at the park, that you, someone you just bump into, or whatever it might be, every encounter should include the elements of friendship. And by that I mean, okay, the elements of friendship. And we're back to our, what we've already said. A truly kind person, remember, possesses both inner confidence and security and also humility. And so the same true things have to be true of a, of a relationship or of a friendship. Right? So you have, you, you know you have a friend when there's honesty and vulnerability in the relationship because there's humility. So there's no spin. There's no managing of the other person's perception of me. I'm completely free to be myself with them and they're free to be themselves with me. There's no hiding. There's honesty and openness and transparency. Friends confess their sins to one another. They talk about their struggles with one another, right? They don't hide from one another. So there's this, there's this unbelievable humility and transparency and honesty, but also at the same time, see, the reason you can do this in a friendship is because there's safety. A friend, you know you have a friend when they know all your deep, dark secrets and all your struggles, but they don't judge you. They don't use your weaknesses to feel good about themselves. Friends don't do that. Friends don't use one another to feel good about themselves. They don't make demands. They're not needy. So see, you know, whether it's in marriage or whether it's just in a community group, or whether it's just in your relationships, you know you have a friend. When that person is humble enough to let you in, and to be honest with you, but also secure enough that they're not needy. They don't need you to be a certain way. They don't need you to respond to them in a certain way. They don't need anything from you. You know they're in the friendship for you, and not for themselves. So in the same way, you know you're being a friend when you're humble enough to share your struggles but secure enough that you don't have to have that person's approval. You're not looking to them to fill up the inner emptiness in you. So you come into the relationship full already. So kindness then, kindness is meeting needs. Uh, Kindness is being a friend to a small group of people and then being friendly in all of your relationships. But there's a third thing. Okay, Not only a direction, not only a matrix, but there's a goal. And I want to say it this way, kindness is visionary. It's meeting needs and being a friend, but all of these things with a certain goal in mind. It's intentional friendship. It's friendship as a means to an end toward a goal. And so we have to ask, what's the goal? And it's hidden right here in the middle of the passage in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you look there with me again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, he said, but only... Such as is good for building up. See, there's the what the work we're trying to do in one another's lives is building one another up, the way you would build a house, constructing a, a structure that would be solid and firm, right? But then he goes on to say, "And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away, and be kind to one another." Now look there at that verse thirty. The words, "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit." By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now you might, as we read the passage earlier, you might have thought, What in the world's that doing there? What's that got to do with everything else Paul's saying? And I want you to see what, what Paul the Apostle is, is teaching us here is that when we are unkind, when we speak harshly to others or we don't give them the truth they need, and when we live selfishly and don't offer kindness, we we, we grieve God the Holy Spirit. And the reason we grieve the Holy Spirit is because of what His job is right here. We are, we are working against Him, is what Paul means. The Holy Spirit is doing something very specific, and when we come alongside an unkindness, whether it be speaking harshly or, or not offering people the honesty that they need, we're actually working against the Holy Spirit and making it harder for Him to accomplish His work in our lives. So, you see, what's His work? And it's right there in verse 30. We're told that the Holy Spirit is sealing us for the day of redemption. That's what he's doing in our lives. Now, what's that? And that phrase, the day of redemption, is the time in the future when we will stand before God and all of the grime and the filth of our sin will fall off of us and we will shine like the sun, the Bible says. When all of our brokenness and our dysfunction will be healed and all of our sadness will come true and we will finally be whole. And the Holy Spirit's job is to get us to that day. See, that's the goal. The goal of his work in our lives is to get us to this day of redemption. And kindness, then, is the work of coming alongside the Holy Spirit as he's working in people's lives and to work with him in one another's lives towards the goal of getting one another to the day where we stand before God without uh, spotless, without blemish, blameless, radiant, and shining like the sun. Now, all of this is from Tim Keller's sermon in the same subject. He uses the analogy of an acorn. So he says, here's an acorn, but the acorn will one day be this huge oak tree. And I have, I have this enormous 100-year-old oak tree in my front yard, and it's just beautiful. And it's hard to imagine that all of that massive oak was contained in a tiny acorn, but it was. So Tim Keller says, look around you, right? Look around. Look to your right and to your left. Everywhere you look, as far as the eye can see, the people you work with, the people in your community group, the people who are sitting right next to you in the pews, they are spiritual. There are spiritual acorns everywhere. Now, let me quote him. He says, Every human being that gets planted, and he says, See, that's what makes the difference. Every human being that's planted in the love and the power of God and in kindness of friendship. See, in other words, for an acorn to become an oak tree, it has to get planted. And for the spiritual acorns that, that so many of us are, for us to get, plant, get, get grow up to become these giant spiritual oaks, you have to get planted in God's love and in friendship and the kindness of other people, right? He says every human being that gets planted in them, there's such beauty and such potential, such power. There's such stuff in there that it's so beyond what they are right now. And the Holy Spirit says that's what he's after in all of his encounters. He wants to get people to their glory selves, to the day of redemption. And so he says, can you stay in step with him? Can you conduct all of your dealings with people with that end in view? C.S. Lewis said it probably better than anybody else. He said, there are no ordinary people. He said, you've never talked to a mere mortal. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which... If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, he said, in some degree, we are helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play. All politics. That's kindness. Dealing with one another in awe over the glorious beings we will one day be and treating each other accordingly. Even in our sins. With respect and care, not judging, no condemnation. See? Let me quote Tim Keller one more time. He said, he says this, he said, every human being is a story. And the end of that story is glory or terror. And every encounter you have, you get into their story. Now, are you going to come into their story filled with your own needs saying, how can I use these people to make me feel better? Or are you going to say, what can I do to get these people into God? What can I do to make this person glorious? Kindness is always there to serve the other person and meet their needs. Kindness is friendship, but with a goal. Remember, kindness looks underneath the flaws and the imperfections of other people to the thing that is completely ravishing about them that God is making them into, and then kindness commits to bringing that glory out. Man, isn't that good work? Don't you long for somebody to to, to commit themselves to that work in your life? I do. So, how do we become kind? Where do we find the power for repentance and the new obedience in the direction of these parts of kindness? And it's right here. And I'll be very brief. Follow Paul's argument in Ephesians 4 and 5. He says, No bitterness or wrath or anger or talking bad about people, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the phrase, As God in Christ forgave you. And walk in love, he goes on to say, As Christ Loved us and gave himself up for us. So the model for our kindness and our love for one another is the kindness and love that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. Titus 3, which we read for our assurance of pardon, says that even more clearly than Paul does here, that we were full of hatred and envy and such. And I hope you saw it there in the middle of that passage in Titus 3. He says, but then the kindness of God, the kindness of God appeared and saved us. that word appeared means made visible. Jesus, in other words, the kindness of God showed up, wrapped itself in flesh and blood, and started to walk among us. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's kindness. He is the physical form of God's kindness. So as God in Christ, that's the model for our kindness. But not only the model, it's also the power. How do you become a patient person? Right? Or better, how do you raise children who are patient people? The only way to become you become a patient person. It happens when you realize that God has been infinitely patient with you, and that's what helps you be patient with other people and bear with them in their weakness. Right? You were weak, and God bore with you. See, how do you forgive? Where it's hard to forgive, right? What we learned last week is you have to remember you've been forgiven. Remember the parable. We owe God a cosmic debt, and He has canceled it, and that's where you find the strength to forgive. So, how do you become kind? Where's the power for kindness? In the passage in Romans 2, in our call to worship, says that God's kindness is the very truth that leads us to repentance. So the God of the universe took notice of you and me. He's been kind to us, and knowing that is the very power that makes us kind. Remember, the the key to becoming a kind person, if you just approach the story of the Good Samaritan, if you still see yourself as the hero going out into the world to be kind to everyone you meet, you're missing the point. You, you cannot. That, you, will, you will go and you'll do great things, but you'll, it'll still be selfishness. There'll still be mixed with selfishness in there. The only way to become truly kind is to see the point of the parable, that you are not the hero going around saving everybody else. You are the man laying beaten, broken, bloodied, left to die in the middle of the road. And someone came to you. And lifted you up and bandaged your wounds... And cared for you. And provided for you. And it was Jesus Christ himself. See. Jesus is God's kindness in physical form. Think about the direction of his life. He was always moving out towards other people. He didn't go through life meeting his own needs. He loved all the way to the cross. He's the friend we need. He had vision in his friendships with people. He looked at Peter. Oh, poor Peter. And all of his... Sins and struggles and failures and foibles and he said to peter you're a rock He looked at peter and he saw a rock upon which he could build the church and he can look at you And see the beautiful glorious things about you that you don't even know to be true of yourself See the kindness of god in jesus christ It's the only thing That will humble us out of our pride because we have no claim on it God didn't look at us and say now. There's a group of fine people I think i'll die for them No, Jesus' love for us sent him to the cross. Why? Jesus died on the cross because he wanted us more than anything else in the world. And the thought of that can give you inner humility because you have no claim. But also inner strength and confidence. You can be a person who has deep humility and security at the same time. And that's what the experience. See, that's the experience of grace. That's what happens when you have an experience of grace. That's what it does in your heart. It produces deep humility and security at the same time, and it's only a heart that has been humbled and is at the same time secured by God's love and kindness, which can turn around and be truly kind to others. And so that's the work we need to pray that God would continue to do in us by his Spirit. And so let's do that, can we, as we prepare to sing. Father, we confess to you that sin is so, sin is so uh, subtle that often even the way we talk about it there are, there are these rules in the scripture, and we think if we break those rules, that's sin. But there, but there are many ways in which we can be nice, kind people and not realize that we're being driven. Even in our good things, in our mannerliness, in our, in our niceness to other people, by this gross black hole of self-concern that exists in the inner parts of our lives. And so help us to identify that and repent. Confess it and turn from it and hate it and turn to you, and we cry out for mercy. Uh, Father, that you would meet us at the point of our, our brokenness and need, where we feel powerless to ever overcome this drive inside of us to think only of ourselves, and to be concerned only for ourselves. Would you come, and would you take your love, and would you pour it into our hearts as we read from Romans 5 this past week? Would you give us eyes to see the loving kindness of our, of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you give us spiritual discernment to see ourselves as the one laying boat broken and bloodied in the middle of the road, and yet in his kindness he came to heal us and to bandage us up and to take care of us? And would it melt our hearts so much so that it would just humble us right out of all of our pride and arrogance, but secure us out of our fear and anxiety so that we might truly become people who can bear the fruit of kindness, so that you might um, be glorified in us, that we could be friends, that we would have the power to be friends. And that our friendship to one another would be the sign of, of the, and, and the apologetic for the power of the gospel in our midst. So that the world might come to know you and glorify you. We, this is what we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At the beginning of the service, we sing a song of repentance together and confess that we are many times, at least it feels, uh, like a valley of dry bones. And yet in our worship, we proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, not only died for our sins, but rose again. And in his resurrection, he has the power to speak to the dry bones that the dry bones might live. And so, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, uh, you would say, oh, the, the, the war I'm waging against the selfishness of my own heart feels so overwhelming, take heart in the fact uh, that the one who uh, is the kindness of God in physical form has sent the Holy Spirit to live in you so that now the promise of this benediction is uh, that he will give you everything you need and that he will go with you uh, to speak life to your deadness and, to, um, and that you might live, that you might come awake uh, to the work uh, that God has for you in the lives of other people. And that's our hope. And so receive this hope then uh, as the promise uh, of God's power to save. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. We'll reconvene in about five to ten minutes in here. Thanks.